Uh, stand up. I'm going to read some of the Bible. We like to read this book around here. Going to read Matthew 5, verse 3 through 11. I think they're going to put it on the screen as well. So the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And I just, uh, I, I submit myself before you tonight, God. I thank you that you're the one doing the pushing in this room. You're the one at work. And I just uh, humble myself, God, and ask that you will pull me with you, Holy Spirit, as I offer your living word to your church, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I little recap from last week. For those of you that were here, we started this topic of the incarnation, which is a fancy theological word for something we can't describe with our language, which is the word Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us, or as the message translation puts it, moving into our neighborhood. And we saw his glory, John says. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is one of the most significant things that ever happened in human history. It is the differentiating factor from Christianity, from all other religions. It's why we're celebrating Christmas. Amen. It's not because of Santa, though he's a good guy. Good old Saint Nick. But we are celebrating Christmas because God became a man. And that is a brilliant theological truth. It's something that's also a very difficult human truth to wrestle with because it has implications for our life. And it's also a very controversial thing in the life of the church that the church has had to wrestle with. And I think every believer has to wrestle with, what does the incarnation mean for me? And opened up last week trying to build context for understanding the divide that we see in the Western world, which I defined as like a platonic divide, meaning back to platonic Plato's thinking, which is the father of Western thought, that there's this divide between the spiritual and the natural. And we see this alive and well in the church, that there's more uh, what we could define as spiritual movements, and there's more social movements, and the kingdom of God encompasses all of those things and more. And we, as believers, as a church body, are called to encompass the same, that we would be an incarnational people, that we'd become a living incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God wants to fill us so that he can make us like Jesus. 
so that people can look at us and see Jesus, that we can be a living epistle known and read by all people, that our life could become a prayer, that our life could become a song of worship. It's the whole thing, 24-7. This is what God's after. He wants our lives. Jesus wants to live his life in our bodies, which is convicting because if he was in our bodies, he'd do quite well. He'd be flourishing. There's really nothing. He'd be like, Father, this is too much. He'd just be bringing the kingdom, revealing the kingdom. Everything he saw the Father doing, he'd be responding. And he's our, he's our example. You with me? So I'm going to jump further into this topic tonight, and we're going to get into the Beatitudes at a deeper level, but I'm going to spend about half the message building historical context for why we need to get into the Beatitudes, and I'm going to bring them tonight by God's grace as an incarnational truth to you. And I want to actually start uh, in... Looking at 1 John, I'm not going to read extensively in 1 John, but I told you last week, read the Gospel of John, read the Epistles of John, read the Beatitudes. So I'm going to try to weave this all together. Are you with me? Okay, so 1 John is a really fascinating letter. Anybody else love this letter? There's no fear in love, but perfect love. Cast out fear. Maybe not so many of you are reading this letter. I didn't hear you very loud. Perfect love. All right, you have read this letter. Praise God. But... John is writing this letter uh, pretty late. As far as all the, the, the books we see in the New Testament, this is one of the last ones written. He's writing later, many years later, as the church has actually been spreading into the Mediterranean world. So it's been spreading outside of traditional Jewish, Jewish, Hebraic thought and culture, and it's starting to spread into what we would call the Western world, so into Roman and Greek culture. And John's writing... We don't know exactly when, but probably 50, 60 years after Jesus has gone and ascended back to heaven, John's writing, and in this book, we we get a lot of cues from him that there's some things going on that he's pretty deeply concerned about. In John 2, he says, I'm writing these things because of those that are trying to deceive you. He starts talking about the spirit of the Antichrist and says, any spirit that doesn't confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. He has language where he starts differentiating between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He is uh, alluding to people that are claiming revelation from God but aren't walking in love. So John is, it's very clear as you read 1 John that he's writing this for a reason. He's writing this to the church to try to move them out into into truth and out of error and to try to safeguard them from what he believes is deception that's coming into the church. So what is this deception? I'm going to give you a little history here. It's a little heady, but I'm, I'm trying to get it right here so that we can all understand it. And there's a little bit of debate scholarly about what the, who the, this deception or what this deception would be. But general consensus brings it down to this. Uh, it's first cultural and then it's theological or, or in the life of the church. And so culturally what John is writing and very directly addressing is what is now called later, it's called middle platonism. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> 
Middle Platonism. Right? Again, this is just a philosophical term. It's actually referring to a school of philosophical thought that was widespread in the Mediterranean world at this point, and it's traced back. It's students of Plato, but Plato had died many, many years before, and now it's his his thinking and his schools of philosophy had. Uh, progressed, and it's what they they characterize as middle Platonism, and this is what culturally was being spread through the Greek and Roman world. It was this idea that God was a pure spiritual being that was no way associated with the material world, because the material world was evil and fallen, and and so he wanted nothing to do with it. But the only way that God, who was this pure spiritual being, interacted with the world was through direct personal spiritual revelation. So the idea of prophecy was actually very, very popular across secular culture. And, and this was seen through the pagan gods or they, they saw all the different religions or cults as just different avenues through which this pure spiritual being would engage directly through esoteric experience and have these revelatory experience that it was called popularly, like culturally, it was called prophecy. So it was this kind of exalted spiritual divide that the spirit was what it was all about and the natural world was evil and in a way that human flesh was evil. So this is cultural. Does that at least resonate? You, you with me? So this is the culture that was, that was phil that philosophically that was permeating through the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman world. Now, uh, they're within this culture in, in Christianity, which is this baby religion that's spreading like wildfire across this Mediterranean, Greco-Roman world, there became this sect within Christianity that's now known to be called Gnosticism. Has anybody heard this phrase before? So what Gnosticism was, is it was people within Christianity that started getting influenced by this thought that I just described, this middle Platonism. And they started, their, their theology started to be impacted by this secular philosophical thought, and they started integrating Christian beliefs into these secular philosophical beliefs. And they found resonance within Christianity, because in Christianity, we have encounters. Uh, there's, there's things that take place, spiritual uh, you know, things happen. But uh, Gnosticism started developing, and Gnosticism is a heresy, but it actually took decades for it to start differentiating itself to see the effect of how this was actually outside what we would call Orthodox Christianity. And so scholarly, what they would say John's writing against is philosophically he's challenging this middle platonism. That's a tough word, by the way. And he's then challenging within the church this Gnostic uh, movement that started rising. And this was pretty widespread in the church. Uh, they believe that in many places the first form of Christianity that came to regions was a Gnostic form of Christianity. And this is what differentiated, if we, if we just were to, you can really geek out on all this stuff, but if you really get down to it, there was three things that were very concerning about the Gnostic movement. The first is that it was not characterized by love. Why? Because people were seen as evil. It wasn't about people. It was about spiritual knowledge. Gnosticism means to just, it needs to get knowledge. So Gnostic belief within the church started looking at people that all they wanted was spiritual knowledge, where this God would only would engage directly through direct personal revelation. But there was no love. 
So you see John, and all throughout 1 John, he's building these things. If you say you know God, but you don't walk in love, you're a liar. So, I, so this is what he's, he's speaking so directly into things. Right? Second problem with Gnosticism is that Gnosticism came to deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they couldn't wrap their head around that Jesus became a human. Because humans were evil. The bodies are evil. So Jesus, in, in this Gnostic form that started explaining, it was like Jesus was, was the, like the avatar of God's spirit, but he wasn't really human. And so this is why John's saying the spirit of Antichrist, which is the deceiving spirit, would deny that Jesus comes in the flesh. And John's like, this is the Jesus that I touched, that I looked at, that I, that I leaned my head against. So John's confronting this, this idea that Jesus was just this spiritual being. And then thirdly, Gnosticism put, uh, it started basically becoming very, very lenient towards sin. Because again, it was all about spiritual experience. So what happened in the body, the body was already evil. So it's kind of like, yeah, sin's not good, but it just, you're just doing it in the body. And this is why John's saying Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who abide in God cannot sin because his seed, his spirit, his sperma, his word abides in him. So when you, when you kind of zoom out historically, you see that John is writing a very pointed letter here. Trying to differentiate and actually lead the church out of a place of deception and into the truth. Because he wants people to know Jesus the way that he knew Jesus. Right? And keep in mind, this is the John who saw Jesus walking on the water and said, don't be afraid, I am. This is the John who saw Jesus glorified on the mountain of transfiguration. This is John who fell dead at Jesus' feet at Patmos. This is John who leaned his head against Jesus' chest. This is John who saw his resurrected wounds. This is John who ate breakfast with him. This is John who knew the man Jesus. And John is concerned because he's saying this whole, this whole, this whole thing is, this is not, this is not Christianity. And he's calling the church to a place of purity. Now, why do I say this? Right, I'm contextualizing scripture. Now, this would be what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring this to why it matters to us. This is why. It's one of the greatest and I believe most poignant critiques of the modern charismatic movement is that the charismatic movement teeters on the edge of Gnosticism. Now, I'm not going to sit up here. I'm, I'm part of this movement, so I'm not saying that it's necessarily entirely true, but I believe that there's truth in your critics' words. Not ultimate truth always, some degrees less or more, but I believe that there's truth to this criticism, and I believe that at its worst, the charismatic movement can easily be deceived into what we could label as Gnosticism. Not in word, no one would ever confess like certain things, but in deed and action. Now, let me, just, let me just give you, let's just listen to the voice of the critic for a minute, and then I'm going to lead us out of this into incarnation of the kingdom. Is that okay? So for three, here, here's criticisms. Here's three predominant criticisms, and this is just kind of accumulated I've run into over the years. One is that the charismatic movement, why is there such, this, this is just me being the critic, why is personal, subjective, prophetic revelation held with more authority 
and more celebrated and valued than the word of God. The faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. Why is there more value? Why is everything exciting? Why is it all about the direct? You know, and again, it's just, you know, why is that valued more than this? Two, it seems that power is far more celebrated than love. Why do you spend more time seeking impartation prayer than you do visiting the naked and the imprisoned and the sick and the dying? And then thirdly, why does grace seem to abound but holiness is not held to the same measure. If, if the charismatic church is all about, it's theologically, it's practically, everything is about the movement and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then why are you not holy? If, if you're encountering the Holy Spirit, why are you getting up and sinning the rest of the week? These are critiques. And you can see if you get jaded in your criticism, you could start to say, that sounds like everything John's writing against. Esoteric experience, power, but not always love, grace and charisma, charismata, on the ground, slain in the spirit, but it doesn't translate to holiness. Like I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's all true, but I'm saying there's probably truth in it. This is the point. I'm not, I'm not trying to paddle anybody tonight. I'm trying to build a case for why the incarnation is so important. Because it's both. We want prophetic revelation and, we, and the scripture. We want power and love. We want grace and holiness. We want spiritual power and incarnational love. And I think what I'm trying to build more than anything is the reality that if we don't have both, we're actually being led astray. We're actually being deceived. I'm glad you're getting it. So why the Beatitudes? What are the Beatitudes? This is Jesus giving like the founding charter treatise, the constitution of the kingdom of God. You know how in our constitution we have these amendments, we have you know, freedom of speech, we have these pillars that actually are the, the foundation of the whole legal and political system, culture of our country. They all are whittled down to these kind of core elements. This is what Jesus is doing when he gives us the Beatitudes. He's saying th this is the, the foundation. These are, this is what the kingdom of God, if I was to boil it down to you know, eight simple sentences, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And this is what I'm like. 
This is what I'm like on the inside. If I were to, if you were to ask me and if I could give you expression, words, principles, something to wrestle with that could bring you into who I am, these are them. This is what I'm like. This is from Jesus. Right? And he gives us these, these beatitudes. And every one of them starts with the word blessed. So in the Greeks, makarios, which means happy or blessed. But if you really get into it, it means something deeper. It, it, it literally means like, blessed are you. Like, you, you will live with a rooted, deep, secure knowing that God approves of the way you live your life. That's what it's saying. Saying, you are blessed. You will, you will be filled with this joy because you will live with a rooted security. If, if you live like this, you will know that you know that you know that God approves of the way you live your life. That's what that word means. And then Jesus proceeds to follow that word with a lot of things that have nothing to do with earthly pleasure. (laughs) I love God. He's so smart. He gives us paradox because paradox are dynamic. We preached this series a couple years ago. Principles are static. You can kind of just camp around them. But paradoxes are truth held in tension and it's never static. It's never, it's never where you can just capture a paradox. You actually have to yield to a paradox. You have to kind of get out on the tight wire of the tension and learn to navigate it. And it's always moving because we're not getting to know a bunch of principles or a government built on principles. We're getting to know a person. And so Jesus is brilliant. He gives us eight paradoxes really to say, this is how I am and this is how you can live a life where you know God deeply approves of the way you live it. This is real. Jackie and I have been talking a lot lately. It's like, how do we know that we know that God approves the way we live our life? You know, we, we're blessed. We live in the West. If you have more than like $10,000 to your name, you're considered radically wealthy on this planet. I don't just take for granted that God's like, yep. You're pastoring a church, you're doing this, you're paying your tithe, you're going on mission trips, you're, you know, like, it's like, check. I hear, narrow is the gate, and few are those who find it. How do you know? Well, right here. Blessed are you. You can live with a deep knowing. So these are important. These are Jesus inviting us into like, here it is. Here it is, church. If you can, if you can make these, if, if these eight sentences can have skin on them in your life, you're walking in the kingdom. That is like so what I'm in for. <laughs> Aren't you in for this? Don't you want those to have skin on it? I want it to have skin on. I want it to be not just word, not just spiritual revelation. I want it to literally ooze out of me. You know those Gatorade commercials where they would drink it and it'd be like yellow or red and it's like, is it in you? And they're like playing basketball and it like splashes out. It's like, 
I want the kingdom in me so much it's sweating out of my pores, man. I've just been praying, God, I want you to work your kingdom into me, and I want you to work me into your kingdom, and I want you to work your kingdom into Riverhouse, and I want you to work Riverhouse into your kingdom so that this thing's not just this idea that we talk about or this ideal that we preach, but a living reality where we are like, oh my gosh, it's happening. It's real. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. I'm trying to fire you up, and then I'm going to bait and switch you a little bit, because you're going to see this is costly. When we start using incarnational language, it's costly. So let's start. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's nervous? We should be a little nervous when we come to the word of God. I'm serious. If we're not a little nervous when we come to the Word of God, it means we're not reading the, God incar- the Word of God incarnationally. This is what we often do in the West. We read the Bible spiritually. Let me give you an example of reading this spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I can clearly see God's not talking about being materially poor. He's not. Check. Whew. Whew. God's talking about being spiritually poor. True, it's right there. No ego probably means to be aware of your need of God. It's like God that I would be poor spiritually. I would have no ego. I would be aware of my need of you. I would be desperate for you. I would be poor. I'd be defined by lack. I would live in a way that I am just leaning into you at all times. Is that all true? That is 100% true. That's, that is a spiritual reading of that. And we may even end that time with a spiritual prayer that says, God, make me poor in spirit. It's heartfelt prayer. Make me poor in spirit. Boom. On to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. Wait, wait a second. This isn't just a spiritual truth. This is an incarnational reality. This is something that Jesus breathed, walked, lived Everything. This, was, this is Jesus we're talking about. It's not just a spiritual truth. This has physical implications, natural implications to the way that we're living our life. So let me just, let me peel back the layer and let me make you a little nervous. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about spiritual poverty. But this is my question for you. How would you ever know what spiritual poverty is if you aren't ever around physical poverty? How do you know what spiritual poverty is? How do you know what poverty is? The only way that you will learn what poverty is, is if you are either materially poor, or you know someone who is. And not just know someone who is, but you deeply love someone who is. And this is why I know it has to be love. Jesus isn't advocating that you go serve the poor. Because often when we serve the poor in the West, we come with the people that have means and we give and we write a check or we do a thing for a night. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, but that doesn't mean there's a power dynamic and it's like sympathy and we give, but we don't learn from them. And this is the thing. Jesus actually isn't saying serve the poor. He's actually saying the poor are your teachers. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm inviting you into a love relationship with the poor because they actually have more to give you than you have to give them. 
And in saying this, I'm not glamorizing poverty. There's nothing glamorous about it. It's not God's will for people, but it is the reality of a broken planet that there is poverty. And poverty exists because of corruption. So Jesus is saying the poor are your teachers. They're going to teach you what poverty actually is. But you're never going to know what poverty is if you don't love someone who lives in poverty. And this is what happens when you love someone. Love is always mutual. You give and you receive. And so when you get into the muck and the mire and the pain of poverty and you start to love someone who's in poverty, it changes you. It changes you and it gives you the gift that words can't describe. I've been, I'm indebted to, to, to people that are so, 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 so poor in this planet that have taught me that there's riches that earthly gold can't buy. And they've disturbed me, and they continue to disturb me. And I am still getting disturbed, just FYI. And I, I'm seeing that it's, there's, just, there's deeper places in my own heart that need to become incarnational here. Right, so Jesus is actually not just giving us a spiritual truth. It's an awesome spiritual truth. He's inviting us into an incarnational reality. Right, and of course, as I love the poor, I'm going to want to see poverty eradicated. And I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to get this heart for all of that. So then just follow me. See the wisdom of God here. This is this incarnational mantra of the kingdom of God. Because where does he go next? Blessed are those who mourn. What happens when you start wrestling with poverty in the world? What happens when you get exposed? Right? And I think poverty comes in so many forms. Right? But when you actually start to love someone that's in a desperate place, you get exposed to pain and injustice and wrong and the reality that there's horrible things that happen all around us. I'm still in mourning from, you know, when we got back three weeks ago, being in that brickyard. I've just been in mourning. And you know what I've been finding these last three weeks? The Lord showed me that I'm not very good at mourning. I either want to fix it or I want to shut it off. And I've been in a pickle lately because I fell in love with these people. And I can't fix it. And I can't shut it off. And the only thing that I can do is mourn. And this is what Jesus spoke to me. He said, Jordan, mourning is the birthing chamber for compassion. He said, and compassion is the missional thrust of the church. But we don't really like mourning in America. We like happy. (laughs) Like, Like, I like happy. We like good days. We like sunshine. We like, we like happy. We just do. And there's nothing wrong with happy. I mean, this word blessed means happy. <laughs> it's like happy are those who mourn. Jesus is saying, I'm mourning constantly when I look at the world. When I see. He was Jehovah Ra, the Lord who sees. The God who saw Egypt groaning in their affliction. Jesus sees. And because he sees, he mourns. And because he mourns, he was moved with compassion to comfort the mourning. 
Compassion is the uncontrollable desire to alleviate the suffering of another person. That's compassion. If you want to know what an uncontrollable desire feels like, just hold your breath for a while. And your lungs will start to burn with an uncontrollable desire for oxygen. That's the heart of Jesus. And that type of desire comes from a place, a heart that mourns. A heart that sees and a heart that mourns. Do you see the wisdom of God? This is just two beatitudes. These are incarnational realities. What does it look like to put skin just on those? Do you see how if I read blessed are the poor in spirit simply as spiritual revelation, I actually can maintain a whole lot of selfishness at the same time of praying really heartfelt prayers, make me spiritually poor. It doesn't cost me anything. If it stays spiritual, it doesn't necessarily cost me anything. But if I read this and recognize that this had skin on it in Jesus and where Jesus spent all his time was with who? The poor, the hurting, those that had less than, those that were in need. That's where he spent most of his time. I mean, there is literally a doctrine in the church called the preferential treatment for the poor that comes from Jesus' life. But that word blessed, happy are you, blessed are you, you can live in a deep-rooted security knowing that God approves of the way you live your life. And then he invites us to the uncomfortable and the costly, the incarnational. We start throwing the word incarnational around. It's costly, but it's so glorious. It is the the secret of the blessed life. You're really quiet. So a few thoughts on my mind as we're closing up tonight. It is a beautiful holiday season called Christmas where we are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ that he came to show us what the kingdom's like. And this is, this is, this is just the, the question I want to leave with you, like in this holiday season, is what does it mean to live these, this, these two, just these two out? What is blessed are the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. What does that look like? How, do, how does that... Because this is the thing, that's where the kingdom's at. You know what the materially rich and the materially poor have in common? We're both poor before God. And when we meet in that place, we find the kingdom. Jesus is brilliant. He's drawing us into a spiritual reality and at the same time a relational reality. It's a lot like John. 
You, you would know, and the anointing of God would teach you concerning all things, and it would teach you how to abide in him. And as you abide in him, you would abide in love because God is love, and you'd manifest love. Just this beautiful Christianity is so beautiful. It has skin on it. <laughs> the word became flesh, you guys. This is what's amazing. When we just yield to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to make ourselves like Jesus. He is Jesus. He wants to just get his way all into us. He wants to work his way into our time. He wants to work our way. He wants to root out all selfishness and make us love. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We're in a city that has a lot of mourning. You know how we know? Suicide rates spike every time this year, which is people that have pain that don't know what to do with it because holidays pull up pain. There are people that are in hard places this holiday season. You don't have to go to a brickyard to find that. But the question, I think, for us is, what does that mean for us? How does that change the way we live in our own little comfortable ecosystem of our lives? I don't want to spur you to some sort of act of generosity. I want to spur you to love. I want to spur you to an incarnational recognizing of your need tonight before God. Like there's something in me that's just so raw that's like, God... I live, I don't, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be rich. How don't you look at me and be like, you're rich and comfortable. <laughs> I want to be poor. Paradox. Tension. But don't just let this stay in the spiritual. Let this have skin on it. Give him your time. Put skin in the game. See what he does. And then this is what I want to do for ministry tonight. I, I, I had a, as I was praying and asking the Lord, because this is the beautiful thing. We want, we want spiritual power and love. You know, and and if, if, we, if we think that what the world needs is just, you know, we, we, it's not just more, you know, acts of mercy. There's spiritual wickedness in our world. There's spiritual oppression. We need authority as the church at the same time. But this is, this is what the, the, the prompting, I had a prompting from the Spirit of God this afternoon that I, I see this divide, this platonic divide, which is alive and well in the Western world today. That's what I talked about last week, this competition, this threatenness between the spiritual and the natural. It's this wound. I see it like a wound in our minds. The Western mind is wounded by this. This is not the creation that God gave us. It's not severed from itself. The, 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 the Western mind has divorced things that God has not separated and I actually believe, you know, that when John talks about the spirit of truth and a spirit of error, there is there's spiritual deception that takes place. And I believe that the, the charismatic church uh, is, is 
glorious. I, I love it. There's power that changed my life that I found through the operating activity of the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. We, we need him. And I believe what the enemy tries to do is to try to contain that and create this, this separation to keep it spiritualized so that it doesn't show up in our skin. Because once it shows up in our skin, the world's going to change. This is what I saw in Mozambique. And so it's, it's, there's, there's spiritual forces, there's, there's spiritual attack, there's demonic things that want to keep us, that actually want to sever it, that want to create these things that just, you know, and it's, it's just not the way. It's not the way of Jesus. You know, Roland Baker, I heard he, he said this, this, this quote I came across years ago. It's like if, he said, in this life, Christianity is missions. If we say that we have the pearl of great price and we keep it to ourselves, or I think it was how could we keep it to ourselves? How could we? We can't. And I think there's something of the, that you see in, in our culture. It's like this. It's like this spiritual deception that tries to wrap us all up in self. And, and I just believe that God, there's something, there's something of breakthrough tonight to break out of this, to start seeing out of ourselves. Because there's something that we will find when we get past ourselves and just join Jesus on the mission of love. There's a whole part of his heart. So I hope I'm describing this well. I'm just, this is the, it came to me as we were on a walk praying. And I want to just pray. I want to pray for breakthrough. I want to pray for spiritual breakthrough that will empower incarnational behavior. Isn't that cool? That's Jesus. It's like the kingdom. The kingdom, there's power, it's spiritual, it's natural, it's all these things. So, yeah, if you want breakthrough, I just want you to, you know, maybe everybody just stand up. I'm going to pray. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. Yeah, if you're on the prayer team, I, I, I want you to come forward. You know, and, and I'm just going to start praying. And, and if, you, if you want prayer, like, I don't know, I, I just have a sense that some of you feel internal resistance right now. And you know, delivering love is, is in this room. And I, it's, it's, we don't need to be afraid. Like, resistance, it's real. Uh, we've been trained in, in, a, in a whole world that, that makes us think that the blessed life, that the life we're looking for is all about me. And it takes a while for this thing to get out of us. But I just, I just really feel there's authority from God that's going to bring breakthrough for some of your lives. And so, yeah, I just, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that the authority of the Father will enter into this room. Lord, and I thank you, God, that you shed your blood for us to become like Jesus. That you sent your spirit to completely consume us so that we would be empowered from the inside out to not just live a life of love, but to desire a life of love. 
that it is a work of your spirit that empowers our heart to actually yearn for love to actually yearn for the hurting and the broken, to actually see the poor and long to be in their presence, God. It's like, it's like, it's like an all-consuming fire, Lord. It's like a, a woman in Mozambique who longs to be in a trash dump and have church there. Nobody is forcing her there. It is the Spirit of God that has so changed a heart that she sees the kingdom. And God, you want to do that in your Western bride. I am convinced you want to do that in Boise, Idaho, with a group of people called Riverhouse Church. So we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus into this place and make us love. Maranatha. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Here, God. Hear, God. Cut us, God. Bend us, God. Break us, God. So that we literally cannot leave this building the same. So that we can't, we can't stomach Western comfort and mediocrity in the same way we did last week. <laughs> That's my cry, Lord. If you want prayer, I just want you to come forward. If you need breakthrough tonight, if, if you say, God, I, I, am, I, 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 I want you to change me. I want you to change me. I want it to cost me something. I want this profession of faith to cost me something. Like you're, you're yearning for that. I, I, just, I want you to just come, come, come and just, we'll pray. And it's not just our prayers it's it's a miracle it's god it's god himself it's the spirit of god coming and and changing us so we just i just we just say possess us spirit of god possess us we are your possession possess me god that's the prayer church that's the prayer let's have everything like truly truly not just the spiritual, have my time. Like truly, 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 truly God, holy given, holy yours. I just have a sense that the 
the sweetness of Jesus is here and it's, it's a, these are tender moments and so we're just going to keep worshiping and if you want to get your kiddos and, and bring them back that would help our workers back there but we're just going to keep this, uh, this atmosphere like this and going to let Jesus touch us with his heart tonight so I just love you church I pray the Lord bless you reveal the kingdom to you that's already here it's already at hand he would open our eyes to see it and that we would have the courage to inconvenience ourselves and say yes so don't be surprised by the detours don't be surprised that it might take work this week to live out the the, the burning that God's putting inside your heart but I just exhort you tonight to say yes, to live this Christmas season in light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let him make you poor in spirit. Let him teach you what it means to mourn and find him, find him at work in our city, find him at work in our lives, find him at work in your families this Christmas. That's, that's my prayer for you all. So God bless you. We're going to keep ministering and let God have his way in this room.